The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Petrol or electric? Petrol or electric? Why choose? Petrol and electric. Discover the BMW plug-in hybrid range. Visit your BMW retailer or find out more at bmw.ie. Sometimes electric, always BMW. It's Wednesday, July the 14th, Bastille Day, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. On my desk, hot off the presses, I have a copy of the new book, How Ireland Voted 2020. It's a treasure trove of research and analysis of the last election, which will undoubtedly be essential summer reading for all Inside Politics podcast listeners. And I am delighted to be joined today by one of the book's editors, Theresa Reedy of University College Cork. Hi, Theresa. Hello. Also here is our own Pat Leahy, who contributes a chapter on the campaign strategies of the different political parties. Hi, Pat. Bonjour. So it's 16 months later, Theresa, and it's interesting to come afresh, certainly for me, and with better, deeper information to the story of the 2020 election, which we were so immersed in, uh, it seems such a long time ago now, in the in the month of January and, and into February. And, you know, we thought an awful lot about what was going on at the time. We reported a lot in the aftermath of what had happened Are there elements within it which have come into better focus since in terms of what it all meant? I think now that we've had some months to reflect, the full implications of the shifting political terrain are are really becoming apparent uh, to us. We know now that um, political allegiances have been changing quite a lot. Voters have been drifting away from the kind of big two of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. But there are new electoral dynamics at play. Uh, Voters are... developing or creating new uh, relationships uh, with parties of the left, most especially uh, Sinn Féin. Uh, so the way the political terrain has has changed, I think we now have a better sense of that. And I think the way the implications of that for the political parties themselves are actually crystallising. And we see that whether it's with the way government formation took such a long period of time or the electoral contests that have come up since in the form of the by-election. So we see the the, the different ways in which these implications uh, are coming into uh, are coming into play. So so the electoral dynamics uh, that we saw at the election were a continuation of changes that had been in in train since 2011, really. Um, but but their effects on the political system, I think, are now becoming more, more clear and more apparent. I mean, that's a point that you've made on this podcast in the past, Pat, and, and make, I think, to some extent in your in your contribution too, is that the, the key breaking point is 2011, that up until then, we basically had various versions of what was called the two and a half party system from the early 1930s up until then. But in the aftermath of the financial crisis, that system was broken. One of the interesting things in the book is there is some comparative analysis that goes on in there with a, with a number of other European countries which have proportional representation systems. And in fact, the old two and a half party system was a bit of an outlier for a PR electoral system that it was so uh, 
uh, I suppose, you know, it, it, it didn't change so much over the years. And in some ways, with our now more fragmented political landscape and with perhaps a bit more turbulence from one election to the next, we're more at the European mean. I think that's the direction that we're moving all right, Hugh. Yeah, I mean, as you say, I've made this point before, no doubt at great and tedious length, um, about looking at the recent elections, not as almost individual events, but as a connected chain of change elections, the, the beginning being, as you say, in 2011. And with that change, then working out what it means over the course of the next two elections. I think it's important, though, to realise that the change in Irish politics had begun before 2011. The loyalty of voters to the two big parties was beginning to fray. We had seen the emergence of a series of smaller parties Irish politics was changing, as you would expect it to have done, and again, as was mirrored in in other European countries, because the society upon which that politics was acting itself was changing. So the great changes in Irish society in the 80s, in the 90s, they were already beginning to manifest themselves into uh, in Irish politics. But I think that change then was turbocharged by the financial crisis and the political consequences of that. So the biggest one of those, of course, was the end of Fianna Fáil as the great monolith of Irish politics. But what happened, what happens then subsequently in 2016 and uh, and in 2020 is the position of Fine Gael is changed as well. And also in 2020, we begin to get an idea of what replaces it. Now, I don't for a moment think that, you know, the changes in Irish society and uh, and therefore in Irish politics are at an end. But I do think that we are beginning to see and what 2020 does is it sort of reorders the political landscape as to how it's going to look in the future with these three medium-sized parties surrounded by an archipelago of smaller parties and of independence. And again, in terms of government formation then, and we have it becoming clear again in 2020 that there are two stages to the formation of government, if you like. There is the election itself And then there is the competition after the election to put together a governing coalition in a landscape where, as I say, there is no there is no automatic majority, there's no natural majority, and the process of government formation becomes a competition between the three medium-sized parties and the smaller parties to assemble a dull majority. So I, I think this is very 2020 looking back on it, and as Teresa says the politics since then has shown the consolidation of those changes. I think this is what our politics looks like for the foreseeable future. One of the arguments that was made in the book, I'm not quite sure who made it, it may have been John Coakley, but it might have been Michael Gallagher, uh, Theresa, is that in this new, more fragmented landscape with this number of medium-sized parties, three of them at the moment, and others, and are, they're all intent on getting into government, which was, uh, and they're all prepared, they say, to negotiate after the election. And that included Sinn Féin this time, which when it hadn't necessarily in, in 2016, is that the idea of voting for government formation 
gets decoupled from the act of voting, um, unlike, let's say, in the in the 70s and the 80s, when people essentially did have a choice between, on the one hand, a Fianna Fáil government and, on the other hand, some form of Fine Gael Labour government, that now you have a number of competing parties, but that you don't really know what's going to happen in this torturous negotiation process. And so that, uh, I think it's said in the book at some point, that causes people to vote perhaps a little bit more with their hearts than they would have done with their heads in previous times? Well, I, th- I think if we go back 25 or 30 years, you had a very obvious set of choices before you because there were two anchors, uh, potential anchors for, for any government. You were going to have either a government led by Fianna Fáil or a government led by uh, Fine Gael. Now that the party system has become much more fragmented, those obvious anchors aren't there anymore or their ability to structure government formation negotiations simply uh, simply aren't there. And we've also, so in addition, we've seen Sinn Féin emerge as a kind of a medium-sized political party with the potential to form a government, not in, in 2020, but certainly if their consolidation continues, um, they will potentially become a a serious anchor to the system. But what's, I suppose, what we have to keep in mind is that no one party alone now um, can solely anchor government. Uh, Because we have three medium parties, you effectively require agreement among at least two of the three uh, to get a, a structured government. So I think that dynamic um, has complicated government formation. I think to take a kind of a wider European view of it, we have really drifted more towards the European norm. Uh, We haven't arrived perhaps at Belgian um, or or Dutch uh, timelines in terms of government formation. But it's not unusual in many European countries that government formation uh, will take several months because of post-election negotiations amongst different ideological uh, blocs or different family, uh, party families. Um, So we have become more European and that is a consequence of the fragmentation. I think what you also have to insert into it from the Irish side is we have become a little bit more ideological in our politics now. Uh, And that's a a new dimension um, to to, to previous uh, decades of electoral politics in Ireland. There is a sense that uh, on balance, the electorate has tipped a little bit more to the left. uh, And this is from a country that has politics dominated all through the 20th century by parties of the centre right. Um, so there's been a movement uh, to the to the, the centre left. Uh, and there are more obvious groupings now on ideological grounds within the uh, system. So you've seen Sinn Féin emerge as kind of a potential uh, fulcrum or core of the left vote uh, with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael as, as the core of the of the right vote. Uh, and that's kind of changed, if you want, from the kind of previous duopoly, uh, which was organised essentially around the civil war dating back to the early 20th century in a form of contest um, that had, you know, long outlived its its origins. We, we now have that more ideological dimension um, uh, taking shape within the system. And we also have the party fragmentation. Um, so it's complicating uh, government formation, but it's, it's making us a little bit uh, more like our, our European neighbours. And I do also wonder, Theresa, in relation to Pat's other point there about uh, the three medium-sized parties of roughly equal stature emerging out of the 2020 election, whether that's the new normal or whether that's a transitional point in itself. I mean, even what you're describing there, which is a binary between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael on one side and Sinn Féin on the other as the two main political groupings, we hear a lot at the moment about 
not just the disappointment which Fianna Fáil suffered at the last election, but various existential questions which have faced it since up until very recently. And I think it's worst ever electoral performance in the Dublin Bay South by-election only, um, only last week, is that there may be an inexorable process happening here, which is really the, I suppose, the supplanting of Fianna Fáil on the Irish political landscape by Sinn Féin. Yeah, I think Fianna Fáil is, is kind of facing a real identity crisis in terms of where it sits uh, within this this wider uh, framework. I, I kind of delve into the more, uh, I suppose, the duller preparations around the election as a starting point, though, to answer that. And that is the three political parties, the three medium political parties went into the election with really misaligned electoral strategies in 2020. And I think that's very important in terms of understanding the outcome and also understanding why we might get a very different kind of outcome at a future election. And really here, what we're talking about is their their candidate strategies. Sinn Féin did not have enough candidates to actually maximise the returns on the votes that it got. It could have had anywhere between 10 and 14 additional seats if it had had more candidates in the field. So it could have done much better than it actually did. Now, the, it's actually the smaller left-leaning parties that benefited from that, the Social Democrats, the Greens, people before profit. Uh, we know that Sinn Féin are most unlikely to make that kind of a mistake again. So they're potentially, if they're support hold steady, going to do much better in the form of um, returning far more uh, far more, more deputies. And there will be a squeeze on the other smaller parties of, of the left. On the other side, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael both went into the election um, expecting a much higher vote share than they actually uh, got. And they had far too many candidates um, in, the, in the race. Now, that might not actually have cost them a whole pile of seats because they lost a whole load of seats in any case. But it's likely that they will calibrate their electoral strategies quite differently going into the next elections. Um, and, and so electoral preparations, I think, were important, unusually in this election, in terms of the final outcome that we uh, that we actually saw. And we, we might see somewhat different outcomes based on very similar numbers, for example, at a, at a future election. And that will also have consequences, although it might not enormously change the balance of power. Because when we talk about Sinn Féin emerging as kind of the, the core or the fulcrum of a potential left coalition, um, it's quite likely that if Sinn Féin calibrates its electoral strategy more effectively into the future, it's their very own potential partners that will get them towards government that they're likely to cannibalise. Of course, they can do better as well. They can improve their, their votes. They can uh, win more TDs in that way. But it's likely that they will also actually take support away from their would-be um, parties uh, in any alliance. Yes, and there's a there's a lot of fascinating detail in the book about how those other smaller left-wing parties benefited from the fact that Sinn Féin didn't have second candidates in the field and a lot of constituencies where they would easily have uh, have taken a, a second seat as well. Which brings me, I think, to what I think, Pat, is the most remarkable aspect of the 2020 election, which is Sinn Féin went in with the wrong strategy for a very good reason, because all the indications in the 12 months prior, including their disastrous performance at the 2019 local and European elections, where they, I think they lost almost half of their seats on, on local councils, and the opinion polling for most of the rest of that year as well, indicated that it was going to be a defensive election for them. And then everything changed. And I still wonder what the hell happened. 
I think that's a really important point, Hugh, from a couple of perspectives. Theresa is absolutely right about Sinn Féin running too few candidates, but nobody was more surprised than Sinn Féin was by its performance in that election, to the extent that a week or two before the campaign started, they were still trimming their tickets, getting people to stand down from tickets because they thought they were running too many candidates. I I think that tells us a couple of things. One is the point that Hugh makes, which I'll come to in a minute, but the other is a big underlying fact about Irish politics as attested to not just by the general election last year, but also by the recent by-election. And that is that the new normal in Irish politics is extreme volatility. There is a wave in every election and it often goes in one direction or runs to the benefit of one party. And often that is decided not before the election campaign begins, but actually during the few weeks of the general election campaign. That makes it terribly unpredictable for the likes of us, but it also makes it really unpredictable for the parties themselves as they try to prepare for the general election campaign, both in terms of the structure of their candidate strategy, but also on their messaging. Irish voters have become de-aligned from their traditional homes. A bigger than ever proportion of Irish voters are willing to jump in one direction and they only make up their minds over the course of the election campaign. Which brings us to Hugh's question. What exactly happened? And I was rereading the stuff last night and, and thinking about this. And I think that there there were there were three things that dominated the public mind uh, in advance of this election there was the perennial concern about health there was real public dissatisfaction at the state of the health services a million people on waiting lists and and so on there was the new element of housing and much of that focus was in a way it's kind of shifted between then and now whereas now our focus is on kind of affordability of housing, but then it was on homelessness. There was 10,000 people in emergency accommodation, including three or 4,000 children. And that really was the focus of the housing debate and those very difficult personal stories of people who were trying to bring up kids in hotel rooms and so forth. You know, that was really up near the top of public consciousness as well. But more generally, there was a sort of national grumpiness around in the autumn of 2019. And we captured that in one of the big surveys, not a political poll, but a big survey that we did, which showed that half of people said that they were just getting by. A third of people said they had felt no benefit from the economic recovery. And I think a combination of these three factors gave you the mood for change in the country. And the election campaign then became a contest as to who was going to be able to surf that wave of a desire for change. I mean, in our first poll of the the campaign, I think it was 38% of people said they wanted a change in the direction of the country. 37% of people, an additional 37% of people said they they wanted to see radical change in the direction of the country. And I think the story of the campaign was the triumph of Sinn Féin's campaigning, much of which I think was down to the performance of uh, of its leader, or a substantial part of it was down to the performance of its leader, Mary Lou MacDonald, in surfing that mood for change. And that's what gave you that. I think the conditions were there beforehand and Sinn Féin, in part by accident, more by design, 
landed on that mood for change and, and, and rode it all the way to uh, the results of the election. Do you agree with that, Theresa? It strikes me that there's, an, there's a combination, as there always is, of the stars aligning for Sinn Féin in terms of the national mood, as, as Pat describes it to some extent. Also some issues which just came out of the blue and did them no harm, like a controversy over a black and tan commemoration just a, just a week or so before the campaign was due to start. Um, a, a controversy over pensions, which didn't just fall into their lap. I think they 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 brought that in as well. They generally, whatever about their candidate selection, I want to ask you about candidates a bit more because I know your chapter is about, about that. Whatever about their candidate selection, their strategic positioning throughout the campaign seemed pretty spot on. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. They were very well positioned to take advantage of the circumstances which arose as we led into the election. I mean, in Chapter 10, Michael Marsh and Kevin Cunningham report a lot of data analysing the um, differences between previous elections. And they tell us that uh, over 40 percent of voters changed who they voted for between 2016 and and, uh, 2020. So there were a lot of voters uh, who were available and open to moving to uh, a different political party. And then when they dig into it, they talk about the role that negative evaluations of the economy had. And and that operates on two levels. People who generally just didn't think the economy as a whole was doing better, but also their own personal financial circumstances. And people who had negative evaluations were significantly more likely uh, to lean towards uh, Sinn Féin. Um, Sinn Féin was also seen as being um, much more likely to be able to handle the housing issue. Um, And housing was the most important or most visible, if you want, of the uh, of the issues, even though more voters told us they were concerned with health, actually, what we do find out in in the chapter, looking at the media, um, is that housing got a lot more attention than health, and voters associated Sinn Fein uh, with uh, with housing. So there was advantages in, in there for them. And then there's this this wider point that there was a slight lean left. Uh, by the uh, voting public. Um, Over the last decade or so, voters have moved somewhat to the left. Um, Of course, we can trace the origins of that perhaps to the austerity and the effect of the uh, economic uh, crisis. But there's no doubt that the ideological orientation uh, of voters has moved a little bit and, and Sinn Féin was, was positioned well for that. Now, of course, the corollary of all of that is that Fine Gael, um suffered a severe governing penalty. It had been in power for eight or nine years and voters were just not persuaded that they could handle the issues that mattered. And we know that their campaign was also um, pitched at a level that didn't connect with voters. So they, they made a big play in relation to their handling of the Brexit issue. But then when we look at the issues that mattered to voters, uh, we find that Brexit is really low down. So there's a there's a misalignment by how they pitch themselves to the, the voters and what mattered to, to voters. So they were also uh, reaping a kind of combination of, of factors. But in their case, it was the tide going out rather than the crest of a wave. And that 40% figure, which Theresa referred to there, Pat, of people who were willing to change or changed uh, between 2016 and 2020, that's a remarkable number. And it seems to me any political party looking at that sees it possibly as a threat, but also as an opportunity for the next time out, that level of fluidity. Yeah, I mean, this is the point I was making earlier about uh, about volatility and about the dealignment process of Irish voters from what many of them would have considered to be their traditional homes. And I think that process, just like the broader change and underlying that broader change in Irish politics, was underway. I mean, I've often made the point about what Bertie Ahern achieved 
in his three election victories was sort of to mask that natural decline in Fianna Fáil votes by buying voters' votes with their own money, not to be too harsh about it, but looked at from one perspective, that was his great political achievement. And then, of course, when the tide went out, Fianna Fáil vote completely collapsed. And something similar maybe may have been happening with Fine Gael, I, I think, over the period that it was in government. But you're right, Hugh, that 40% of voters will switch between 2016 and 2020. I think it's a reasonable assumption to make that the number of people who may be prepared to switch between 2020 and 2024, 2025 is at least 40, maybe as high as 50%. And that is a huge pool of voters for the parties to target. But to target that effectively, they will have to read the national mood a lot better than, say, Fine Gael did before the last election. The preparation for and execution of the Fine Gael election campaign was a complete litany of errors from timing to self-inflicted harm by the behaviour of its own TDs like Dara Murphy and Maria Bailey to the strategic pitch at voters during the election campaign as putting forward Fine Gael as the party to handle Brexit when I think it was 2 or 3% of people thought that Brexit was the most important issue facing the electorate because Brexit had been largely, at least at that point, settled when the election was called. And of course, that goes back to the timing issue. So I think looking at the future of Irish politics, that extreme volatility is something that will make preparations for the next election difficult for all parties and also introduces, as we've seen both with Fine Gael, when it was bad luck, and Sinn Féin with good luck, introduce that element of just luck and how an election lands on the individual parties. And part of that is candidate selection, Theresa. And I, I think sometimes at the national media level, we perhaps don't pay quite as much attention to that as it deserves, because it is incredibly important, particularly with the form of PR, single transferable vote, multi-seat constituencies that we have. Actual individual personalities are very important. It doesn't mean that people can't get elected just by their party's popularity, raising all boats. There was notably one Sinn Féin candidate in Kildare who went on holidays and still got still got elected, which I, I think indicated that. But you have a chapter on on candidate selection, not just the, the numbers which which the different parties got, got wrong, but the, the kind of decisions they made and the kind of people they ended up with. And that's sort of fascinating. The, the kind of people whom we elect, where they come from, their socioeconomic profile, uh, their demographic background, and of course, um, gender with the, with the gender quotas having been introduced as well. There's a lot of interesting information there. Yeah, I think some of the time candidate selection becomes very interesting after the fact, because then you can really reflect on it and, and see how it aligned um, with the wider electoral strategies of, of the parties. It, electoral preparations matter probably more in the Irish case because of the PRSTV um, system. And that means that some of the bigger political parties will usually run more than one candidate. So when you're running more than one candidate, you have decisions to make about where those candidates will be located within the constituency. Geography matters a great deal um, when it comes to, to rural constituencies. And we have a chapter, Adrian Kavanagh writes actually about the specific geographic dynamics on the uh, on the ground. But then there are other things like succession planning uh, that you're going to want 
want to bring into to play? You know, have you uh, candidates that are approaching perhaps the end of their political careers? Do you want to bring in somebody else um, to uh, uh, to work with them? Uh, and then you add into that the gender quota, which is a legal requirement by the political parties that their candidates, they must have a minimum 30% of either gender. Now, in practice, we know that's actually a, a female um, uh, gender quota. And that has really complicated issues for Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael because they have a large number of incumbents on the ballot paper, people who are either elected or who have been running for the party for a very long uh, period of time. Their electoral fortunes are dwindling, so they're doing worse and worse at each election. And now they have to add in new candidates and it's creating a lot of tensions uh, at the local uh, at the local level when it comes to these uh, these decisions. And Really, the parties, particularly Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, only barely met these requirements um, in in 2020. And that matters because the requirement is going to go to 40 percent, most likely by the time of the next election. So the the rule, the law as it stands, is that seven years after it's first introduced, which was 2016, uh, the quota will go to uh, will go to 40 percent. So there are a lot of kind of pressures at play on the political parties um, in terms of of picking somebody who is elected. Electable. And, and there's this kind of, this is this nebulous question of what's electable? What do the voters want? Um, who, who do you choose that's going to connect with your voters? But then you have all these other criteria around how many candidates should you have? Do you have the required mix of men and women on the ballot paper? Do you have the required geographical balance, particularly um, in large rural uh, rural constituencies? And, and it creates a, a fairly heady mix uh, on, the, on the ground. Now, interesting in Ireland, you know, we've been reforming how we choose uh, candidates um, at, at party level since about the 1990s. And they're reasonably democratic uh, processes in the sense that all party members have a vote. But of course, it's the party headquarters that set the rules on which the uh, on, on which the party members vote. So there's still quite a lot of centralised control running through the uh, running through the system. Uh, but it's it's a very it's a very important set of decisions and they take place just one step out from the election, but they really shape the dynamics of a lot of the competition uh, on the on the ground. And we can learn a lot about politics as well from what we see in these patterns. And did Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, did they nominate women into placeholder positions where they didn't really have a chance of winning in certain constituencies merely in order to meet their quota? There's certainly a sense that they, they added women at, at a late stage. And I think you probably look at Fedegrail again a, a bit more probably in this case, um, where they chose people who didn't have a lot of previous electoral experience. So when it comes to Dáil elections, generally speaking, the political parties like to actually uh, choose candidates who have some electoral experience, usually at, at council level. And, and that significantly contributes to their likelihood of, of success. When we look at some of the women who were selected, particularly in the late stages in the run-up to the election by Fine Gael, they tended not to have very much um, political experience or electoral experience, which really does suggest that they were added as a means of reaching the, the quota um, in the days running up to the election. And the, their 
there are important financial consequences or penalties of not reaching the quota. So um, the political parties do take that very, uh, very seriously. But it speaks to kind of a way in which the, the parties haven't really fully embraced the consequences of the laws that they've brought in themselves, um, that they, they haven't actually put in place the preparations. And in the first instance, those preparations probably need, need to be put in place at, at local election level. The parties need to be bringing through candidates uh, at the local elections because it's from the councillor pool that they will most often actually choose their candidates uh, for the uh, for the general election. I think Fine Gael was probably most affected by that, uh, but it's certainly the case uh, that, that Fianna Fáil had, had troubles as well. Probably the best performing party um, was the Social Democrats in the sense that actually their balance moves in the other direction uh, in that they had a majority of uh, female candidates uh, over, uh, over male candidates. But this is a problem that's much more acute for the older political parties because they have so many um, male incumbent TDs, but also incumbent candidates, people who have run for the political party for, for a long period of time. And, and you ultimately will have to displace some of these uh, at a time, you know, when you're reducing the numbers of candidates you're going to be running anyway. So, Pat, that's going to be a huge problem, I think, for Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Uh, I think that the, the 40% quota comes in in 2023, so almost certainly before the next election. They had such difficulty in some circumstances hitting the 30% mark. Hitting the 40% is really going to put it up to them. But, but what you'll see then is, to put it bluntly, no hope of female candidates added to tickets and no resources put behind them. You know, I think there's a certain inevitability uh, about that. The parties will hit their quota. There's no doubt about that because, as Theresa points out, the financial implications of not doing so are too serious for them. But shifting incumbent male TDs will be something that I think they will they will not see any profit in doing. And I think that's what you'll see. I think you'll see them hitting their quotas. But the actual improvement in the number of female TDs as opposed to candidates uh, is likely to be slower, at least for the two big parties. So does that bring the system into disrepute? Depends on your perspective, I suppose, you know. I think there would be no appetite in either of the two big parties, or actually in any of the parties, to throw out sitting male TDs in favour of, say, female-only shortlists or whatever for these, uh, to name one device that has been uh, utilised elsewhere. So, yeah, I mean, the whole infrastructure of gender quotas and trying to use them to restructure on gender terms anyway, the way the doll looks is something that has had pretty mixed success. I mean, there is, to that extent, I suppose it's in disrepute uh, already. But, um, you know, not to advocate a position on it, but I just think that's what you'll see. But I do think it's, it's worth saying the gender quotas have had effect. I mean, the numbers of women candidates have increased and the number of women TDs elected have also increased. Perhaps not at the pace that would have been desired when the legislation was going through, but there are there are effects. And I, I think just... On one level, yes, you can see that they will do what Pat, the parties will do what Pat, they'll just add, Pat has said, they'll add candidates. But you also have to be careful of that because over-selection can be as much of a problem as under-selection. And that's something that Michael Gallagher discusses in his chapter. Having too many candidates can be as as difficult because you can split the vote amongst uh, a variety of different smaller candidates and they end up getting eliminated and you have nobody in the race to actually absorb the, the vote. So 
too many candidates can actually be uh, a problem as well. So it's not that parties won't do it, but but I think there's a there's a caution about why that would not be the the um, sharpest solution to this particular uh, problem. I, I think you know the other political party, certainly Sinn Fein, um, you know, has comfortably met it. it had a slight disimprovement and, and then recovered again. The Labour Party, the same. Parties can do that. The, the Social Democrats, they're a newer political party, so it's much easier for them to do it. But they are able to find candidates and lots of women are interested in politics. And I think the bigger issue for the, the kind of big two, the old big two of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, is that the figures that we do have tells us that they have a large number of female members. Up to 40% of the members um, are, are women in these parties uh, based on the figures that have been uh, reported. So the, the women are there. It's about putting in place the structures and the procedures to ensure that they're encouraged uh, to, to come forward and that they are supported when they do come forward. Just on that point, there's no doubt that the women are there. And I've often made the point before that on balance, the average woman TD tends to be of a higher calibre than the average male TD, in, in, in my experience, covering politics anyway. And there is that danger that if you run too many candidates in a constituency, and there will be many of them where there is one seat for, say, we're talking about the big parties, there's one seat for Fianna Fáil in them, and there's one seat for Fianna Gael in them, that the sitting TD who will run again is a man. In those instances, I don't think it is in the It will not be judged in the party's interests to run a very strong female candidate which could and put resources behind her because that will bring about the danger that Theresa identifies which is you end up splitting the vote and endangering the single seat that you have and that's why I would see the danger that actually you run female candidates but don't run good female candidates or don't put resources behind them. Just one other question about about candidate selection, Theresa. I mean, you look a little bit at the, the socioeconomic profile, the different professional areas that, that people come from and that's changed over the years and that's interesting and I, I was just thinking partly because of this by-election we've just had where Owen Murphy basically seemed to be threw up his hands and said, I don't want to do this bloody job anymore. Um, and, and in the wake of that, a, a number of people who know that world said to me that they fully understood that, that being a TD, particularly a backbench TD, was a nightmare, was a thankless task. You didn't own your own life. You were vilified in social media, subject to all kinds of abuse. And you might well decide to go off and do something, something that was both more um, professionally satisfying and, and anything else. Now, I know lots of people other people think the TDs are on the pig's back living off the state and they're they're basically conning us all, um, which I don't agree with at all, by the way. But the nature of the people who want to be TDs and who are being elected as TDs, what do we know about that? Well, we, we know that the profile of candidates um, has changed a great deal and that's had knock-on impacts on the kind of profile of people um, who end up as, as TDs. And part of this is connected to the kind of diversification in the party front as well. Um, we've seen that um, in, in the past, there was a very high concentration of people in the lower and higher professions um, in, the, in the doll and amongst the candidates. So Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, the Labour Party, they take tended to draw their candidates from the, the professions, uh, from business backgrounds, and particularly Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael from the farming community. That has actually changed quite a lot. And as we've seen, certainly some of the left, more left-wing political parties come through um, Sinn Féin, um, Solidarity People Before Profit. We've seen a considerable diversification. We're seeing a lot more people coming from kind of um, manual um, uh, occupations, um, people working um, in kind of 
I suppose, retail, um, generally speaking, just a broader selection of people are coming into politics. And the dominance of the professions is being diluted over a period of time. And then kind of interestingly, perhaps just a reflection of a wider trend in politics, um, you know, farmers have, have really dwindled down to a very small group. You still have some farmers in, in Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, but Interestingly, when we were collecting the data, a lot of the farmers are even part-time farmers. It kind of reflects actually what that wider conversation about farming is, that there aren't even full-time farmers coming into to politics anymore. So especially, I think, if we can go back to the kind of 2000s, this is a kind of a turning point in, in terms of the kinds of... Ba- professional backgrounds that people have coming into politics, they become more diverse. And politics has become much more reflective of the wider population, people from much more um, much more diverse backgrounds and, and this the lower dominance of the professions. Although it, it still has to be said, some of the political parties, uh, Fianna Gael, the Greens, in particular, still do actually draw quite a few of their candidates from the from the professions. I think one other thing that's probably worth mentioning in terms of the the background of the the candidates is that we tended to have quite a lot of people in politics who had a family link to somebody who had previously been a TD. So we talk about dynasties in, in Irish uh, in Irish politics, and um, that's a dynamic that has also been uh, fading a little bit. It's still there in Fianna Fáil and Fianna that kind of have a, a, about a third, maybe 30% or so of their uh, candidates have a link to somebody who was previously involved in electoral politics. Uh, but it's um, it's not the case with a lot of the, the other political parties. And actually interesting, some of the newer political parties where there is a family link, it's much more likely that it's with somebody who is currently in politics at the same time. So you have a couple of examples of, uh, you know, brothers or sisters uh, being in politics at the same time. And the uh, um, the Green Party is probably a good example of Catherine Martin and her brother are both involved in electoral politics um, at the same time. That's quite different to if you look at uh, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, where you have TDs who have connections back to former Taoiseach, for example, uh, in those uh, in those political parties. So that's something that's also changing. And we can see that in terms of the uh, candidate selection data. But they're, they're that kind of I suppose, broader widening of the, the base of politics is also evident in the data we have on um, who becomes a TD. And actually, the appendices of the book are a fascinating picture of the uh, backgrounds and, and uh, professional backgrounds and educational backgrounds of the people who were elected TDs in the 2020 uh, general election. Yeah, the Greens Parliamentary Party sometimes looks like a family soap opera to me, actually, all the various the very, the various connections between them. But Pat, I mean, it is interesting because dynastic politics were, were always a huge part of the, the Irish political story. And as Theresa says, that's that's due in part to the decline of the two main parties, which were which were most reliant upon it. So you've got new parties coming in, and by definition, they're not going to be as dynastic. But do you, over your long period observing the parliamentary process in Ireland, steady uh, on, steady on, do do you notice a difference between the the kind of the 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 mood, the type of person, the way they interact with each other now from when you started? I think you only have to look at them to see that. The doll now, when I went into the doll, which since you brought up the uh, the, the point, Hugh, it was in after the general election of 2002. It was, you know, mostly male. Everybody was in uh, a suit. It looked, I suspect, the way the doll did, you know, 20 years before that and 20 years before that again. 
you look at the doll now and even the Fianna Fallers aren't wearing suits all the time. There was a fairly entertaining row, which I, I think we discussed on here before, about whether Mick Wallace should wear a shirt and tie and jacket. And the doll decided that, no, well, he, he didn't have to, actually. He could uh, wear what he liked. Not to be glib about this, but this does demonstrate something. TDs are more diverse, not just sartorially, but politically, by background, by belief you know, by political philosophy, uh, I think. I mean, the doll is now has a number of revolutionary socialists in it. And while the revolution may seem to be uh, as far off as, uh, uh, as ever, the fact is that the radical left are being elected and re-elected and form part of our, our national political debate, a substantial part of it, in a way that would have been unimaginable uh, 25 years ago. So the doll is more diverse, but society is more diverse and more accepting of diversity and more willing in their political choices to express that diversity. But is it as terrible a job as some people have said to me? Being a TD? Mm. Yeah, some parts of it are really difficult, but... You know, people do it because, for I suppose, like all of us, they do it for a variety of uh, a variety of motivations. You know, they do it because of altruism. Uh, I always think that politicians are an interesting mixture of you know altruism and selfishness and egotism. And I suspect that part of it hasn't changed. I think one note of caution to sound is that the untrammeled abuse that politicians, all people involved in public debate, but politicians especially, get on social media is something that will turn people off, especially women, because they get more abuse than men do, more personalised uh, abuse than men do, often of a worrying or indeed criminal nature. Um, and that, of course, is going to turn off uh, a proportion of people. I don't think there will be a shortage of people offering themselves for election. But what I would worry about is that the the abuse that people get on social media, which is part of the just an accepted part of the job now, politicians will uh, will tell you that, will turn off some of the people that we could do with in uh, in our politics and some of the better people that might otherwise be in uh, become involved. I mean, there were 531 candidates who put themselves forward. So, I mean, and we're trending well above where we used to be 15 to 20 years ago. So there are people who are interested in being involved in politics. And I think it's probably also worth saying, um, if Michael Gallagher discusses in his chapter, that the turnover of TDs at this election was lower than it had been at, at previous elections. Um, so there were about 20 who retired and incumbents generally uh, didn't do perhaps as, as badly as they did, say, for example, in, in 2011, when you had that big thing to fall um, implosion. So it, it it's an attractive profession for some and there are still people who, who want to participate in it uh, and more diverse people are coming in than had been uh, the case in the past. But there was a quite um, I think a considered conversation that took place around the 2019 local elections when a large number of, of relatively young councillors, particularly in urban areas, decided not to, to, to contest the election again and seek uh, seek re-election. And quite a number of those cited the pressures of, of politics and, and exactly the kinds of things um, that Pat has highlighted. So, um, you know, it's it swings and roundabouts to, to some extent. There are parts of the job that are actually very, very difficult um, and, and that's probably spread across um, all of the political parties, but probably more acute for the female um, candidates and female politicians within those political parties. 
Last question to you, Teresa, if you wouldn't mind. It's um, the Dublin Bay South by-election last week provides a more recent snapshot, I suppose, if, of the state of, if not the nation, a certain part of a certain particular part of the nation. And it's the it's the most recent information we have. Do you think it adds anything to the sum of knowledge which is brought to us in your book? I think it, it tells us some things about the ways the dynamics are, are playing out. We have to be a little bit careful about taking uh, by-elections and extrapolating too far with them. I think the internal politics of the political parties will probably be more affected by the outcome than the actual vote shares, uh, particularly. Uh, you know, the, the internal dynamics in Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, um, and, and the Green Party, the governing parties, you know, Fianna Gael, they lost what was effectively their own seat. Um, and there are questions that will, there'll be little murmurings within the party now in relation to the electoral attractiveness of uh, Leo Varadkar as the leader, uh, somebody who was brought in because he had this kind of powerful ability to campaign and connect with voters who has significantly underperformed at every electoral contest that he has faced. So I, I think it's not going to have any immediate consequence, but it's just that another little piece of information um, that will play in there. I think the Fianna Fáil one is, is probably playing out much more visibly in the public uh, public glare, but again, unlikely to have an immediate effect, but contributing to the internal uh, power dynamics of, of the party. I think Ivana, can, uh, Ivana Bacic was really the ideal candidate for this constituency. If you had to pick a candidate who kind of aligned with the, the preferences, the ideology, the philosophy of so many of the voters, uh, it was I- Ivana, Ivana Bacic. I mean, the big question really is why she hadn't been running there so many times. And we, we know some of the answer to that, but it, it, it kind of comes to the uh, comes to the fore. But her, her success, I think, is a good news story for the Labour Party. But does it change the fundamentals for the Labour Party? Not really. It, it, it It'll have something positive for them to talk about and for Labour Party groups meeting around the the, the country, but it it probably it, it it probably is not going to change their their significant dynamics in, in to any great extent. So I mean I think it tells us things about you know what we. I think it tells us that some of the dynamics that we saw at the 2020 uh, election are still at play and they're they're washing their way through the system. But I think in terms of an event, it probably has more consequence for the internal politics of parties than anything else. How Ireland Voted 2020 is edited by Michael Gallagher, Michael Marsh and Theresa Reedy and is published by Palgrave Macmillan. I highly recommend it. Thanks to Theresa and Pat for joining us. Thanks also to our producer Jennifer Ryan and our engineer JJ Vernon. Uh, we're going to be back very soon, but do remember you can always email us with your thoughts and your questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.